Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Nose Podcast, a platform for me to nose into other people's business. On this podcast, I strive to share with you stories from a range of different people over various different topics. So before my nose starts twitching any further, let's get down to business. Hello and welcome to the Big Nose Podcast. This week, I am delighted to be joined by singer-songwriter and Kildare native, maybe most importantly, Megan O'Neill, possibly one of the busiest people in music in the last 12 months. It's great to have you on the show today. And before we get into your whole story, Megan, I just wanted to kind of reflect on the last 12 months maybe and, and compare your compared to the people in your industry I've spoken to different people on previous episodes of this podcast who have found it quite challenging but you seem to be quite the busy woman over the last 12 months how has it been for you yeah it's been amazing and really challenging at the same time yeah. like for everybody you know there's there's been big benefits of this period of time for me and big you know issues and challenges with the time I was really fortunate though because I finished an album like a month before this the pandemic kind of hit so it meant I had a product ready to go I had something to promote and I was then able to kind of consistently release music every eight to ten weeks over the course of the last year but yeah I remember like when when it all kicked off last March yeah. I was playing I had had an incredible start to 2020 I'd signed on with a huge agency in in London and I started working with a new lawyer and I was in meetings with different managers all the time and I'd finished two albums or I'd been working on one album finished no I finished two albums one was a compilation album for Universal and one was my own album and both of them were meant to be coming out in 2020 as well as a hundred plus shows so it was going to be the busiest year of my career to date I was pretty you know scared of of the year ahead I remember like starting into 2020 and going shit how am I gonna get through all this like this is so much work and I the beginning of 2020 I'd opened up for a couple of huge names like I'd done the Olympia which was a dream of mine forever with the Lighthouse family and the night that all of this kicked off it was the I remember it was the 9th of March and I was opening for Jamie Cullum at the board gosh I had just come back from being abroad doing some shows and the way home was really like ooh, there's (laughs) something happening in the air and my boyfriend at the time was on his way to France to play a bunch of gigs and it was all really like weird and I remember when the whole thing the whole world shut down thinking oh my god great I get two weeks off <laughs> yeah two weeks holidays that yeah that was my thought pattern I was like I can rest for two weeks and then be ready to do all of these you know nine months of touring like it's going to be class and here we are yeah two weeks <laughs> um, two, uh, two weeks 52 weeks later yeah exactly and like there's definitely uh I suppose I had so much momentum going and so much kind of in my favor going on when this all hit and then it was incredibly frustrating because it takes years and years and years to build up that kind of momentum and then it was swept from underneath me by no fault of my own yeah so I was naturally raging and 
But then I was like, you know what? I have an album ready to go. I didn't do what a lot of people did, which was kind of sit on the music and wait till touring came back to release. I was like, screw it. I'm going to release a single every two months. I'm going to be doing loads of kind of online streaming. I'm going to put out the album. Yeah, that's worked really well for me. I've been really fortunate that a lot of a lot of things have kind of spiraled in a great way. As you said, you had an opportunity. You had to kind of replace yourself within... Where, how you were going to get it out, where you're going to get it out. Obviously, you couldn't get it out now in terms of, you know, pushing it in terms of doing an international tour. You couldn't go down that road, but it was a case of, like, you had the music, hold on to it and sit on to it, as many have done, or you could re- release it and get people familiar with with your music, I suppose, as well. Maybe going back a bit, Megan, in terms of, as I said in your introduction, you are all a Kildare native, and a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. What was it like growing up for you in terms of your family, your childhood, growing up in Kildare? What was like? The, was there music in your family? Yeah, so my family, like my mom would be big into music and she would have been kind of my music educator when I was a kid. Like right. we would be driving around in the car and she would always have blaring out the radio <laughs> like Joni Mitchell, Carole King, Mary Black, The Coors, Stevie Nicks, like queen just amazing music billy joel and so it's only now that i realize actually how influential that was for me as a young girl really interested in music i was playing loads of different instruments and i was you know started playing in bands when i was about 14 had no idea what i was doing but was having fun and um how influential it was to be brought up listening to powerhouse women in the music industry amazing female songwriters amazing female artists lots of male artists as well but my mom was very pro-female yeah and that had i think like subconsciously that had a huge influence on on me and and probably my ability to think like i can do this you know there's lots of great women on the radio i can do this so yeah i I grew up and i like every kid like wanted to play piano one week guitar one week violin one week blah blah did you ever get to the drums no, no I, I, I didn't. I, 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 I got drums one year. I, I, like you, went through guitar. I had a keyboard, piano. And then one year I asked Santa Claus for the drums. And luckily enough, I think, or maybe not luckily enough, the neighbours on one side were darkly deaf. That was okay if I had the drums. But you never got to the drums, no? I never did. I kind of wish I did. I just did um, plenty of time. Like, being a female drummer is pretty badass. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I didn't. I, I tried loads of different things. And then the one thing that my mom just persisted and made me stick out was the piano. Yeah. And I wanted to give up the piano. Like I fought, I fought with her tooth and nail every year <laughs> from when I was about 12 to give it up. But I was big into horses at the time. And she was like, if you want to keep horse riding, you have to keep doing piano. And that was the bribe. Bribery works. Um, bribery works. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. I, I was really lucky to grow up in a family that were like, you love this? Okay, great. Let's get you more into this. You know, and there was there was a big support system there for something that I clearly got so much enjoyment out of and also loved to do, you know, like was good at and would naturally gravitate yeah. towards when I'd come home from school, I'd go straight in and play the piano and be writing songs from a young age. So... Yeah, I think growing up, like as any teenager and, and trying to, music plays either a conscious or a subconscious level, uh, music in some part of our, our lives growing up. And if you're like yourself, maybe where you have a natural gravitation towards music and you're in a household that actually helps harness that love you have and be able to push it in the right direction. Okay, bribery with horse riding might have been, been the uh, counterpunch for it. 
what type of music was it that you were interested in? I know your mom, you were saying your mom had all the female powerhouses, but were there any musical influences you had growing up? Yeah, loads. Like, I loved listening to... For me, it was always the stories behind the songs, and it still is. Like, yeah. I find just the stories, the lyrical content of songs is what always gets me. And I remember the first album that I ever bought with my own money was Home by the Dixie Chicks. Nice. And I literally played that CD to death. Like, I think it just, I think it just died one day because I played it so much. But, like, the lyrics... It was always the lyrics and I would, I remember from a really young age, like sitting there and crying over beautiful lyrics that I didn't even understand, you know, that I couldn't even relate to at the age of 11 or whatever. I just loved the stories from a really early age and I think that's something I've really tried to adopt in my own songwriting, that that the stories, you know, take, take center stage. They are the most important part for me. Yeah, obviously then, as you said, the story is important to you and how you can put the words together to communicate maybe a feeling or an emotion that is is important in the song and then being able to put the music to it or whatever, or whichever way it works is great. But it's one thing doing that as a teenager and then all of a sudden, you know, you're getting a little bit older, you're going through school, you're going to college, whatever it is, and then it's a decision you have to make whether you're going to back yourself or how you're going to go down and make a career out of it. Because it's one thing being an interest or a hobby growing up but it's a different thing when you're trying to make some money out of it how did you decide or when was the the light bulb moment as they say that you know you want to go down a a career path in terms of a singer songwriter for me i don't know that there was ever a conscious decision yeah that there was ever a moment where i said this is what i'm gonna do i think it was literally it was like a pull it was just i just had to do it and and i think as well as that, you, like, I remember I went, I studied psychology in college, I went to UCD, and I, my parents were, as much as they were supportive of my love of music, in those very early days, they certainly were not pushing me into doing it as a career, because they were like, it's so hard, it's so competitive, like, we're going to be worrying about you for the rest of your life, (laughs) like, where are you going to make a living? And I understand that because if I had kids, I'd do exactly the same thing. <laughs> um, but I, I went to UCD and I was like, right, I'll go, I'll get the, you know, quote unquote, real degree. I was two weeks in university and my mom rang me and she said, Megan, did you know they have a singing scholarship at UCD? And I was like, no, didn't know that. And she said, Mums are great. Mums are great. Irish mammies all the way. She was like, yeah, they've got a singing scholarship maybe you should apply and I was like okay sure screw I'll throw my hat in the ring why not and I remember showing up for the audition and it was a chamber choir they gave away like 16 scholarships every year with whatever 20,000 students I think there are in UCD so it's highly competitive and it was classical singing and I'd never sung classical before I was able to sight read because I played piano but I'd never sung I'd never sight sung and you know being able to stare at a piece of music and sing it directly off the page so I went for the audition and everybody else around me was classically trained had been in like the world youth choir had, like everyone else was a genius and I was like yeah way and over my head here <laughs> but I'm here anyway. um, I got it I got offered it and and Desmond Early who's the musical director saw something in me and I'm so grateful for that because that was an unbelievable 
just amount of training in those three years there was so much training vocally and musically and and just with theory with everything and I got to you know travel with the university you know to different countries and be in competitions and do different arrangements of pop songs and in like this choir it was just it was amazing and then when I graduated I was like right I'm gonna move to Nashville and my parents were like are you joking like you just got a degree will you not just go and do a master's like a normal person I was like nope here we go and I guess that for me that was that was the turning point yeah because I could have very easily gone and, and gotten a master's and yeah, gone into psychology. Go. I really liked it. Yeah. But that for me was the, I suppose that was the moment. But I. It was kind of like your, your the fork in the roads and you took the yeah. left traveled in that sense. And it was, a, it was a pretty steep fork. Like yeah. it was, you know, you, I made that decision and that was, I was like jumping down a rabbit hole and was really hard to come back from because I then got to Nashville and I was so immersed in this amazing industry that I loved so much and then I just couldn't reverse yeah. you know there was no road back to there was no road back to where that fork could come from as you've alluded to it uh, you've obviously in more recent years been living outside of Ireland between LA and London and it really follows a trend if you look back at a lot of successful artists that it's important to live outside of Ireland and expose yourself to international influences do you think it's important for your career to go outside of Ireland and expose yourself to this yeah I think it was for me I mean first of all living in Nashville was like the most amazing education you could ever ask for as a songwriter because everybody around you is phenomenal (laughs) like I went there completely naively and very green and didn't really know what I was doing and I I went there naively thinking like I'll get a deal in in the first six months that I'm there obviously and not in a not in a cocky way just that I didn't know enough about the industry I just thought that's That's just what happened yeah 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 and then holy cow I got there and I was like oh my gosh, this is the most humbling experience I could have ever asked for. Everyone is amazing. And it made me realize the amount of work that you have to put in to be a successful songwriter, artist, musician, producer, engineer, any, anyone in the music industry is leaps and bounds beyond what I originally thought. Yeah. And I was really fortunate when I was there because I was essentially kind of taken under the wing of some amazing people in the industry like I was so fortunate to be brought into these incredible circles really influential songwriters labels and publishers and like I was really fortunate I was there at the right time I met the right people yeah um and I was just able to be a sponge yeah I was just able to take everything and learn everything that was never likely to happen in Ireland man like no, I don't think that was likely to happen here. And But I, ne- I, I, I never necessarily tried, and that's the thing. I yeah. never actually tried here to dive into the industry. I think I just wanted... I was 21, and I wanted a sense of adventure, and I wanted to live abroad, and I wanted to travel, and that came into it as well. You know, those life experiences came into it. And I think, for me as well, being such a huge fan of, like, roots music yeah. and really wanting to learn how to write stories Nashville just called me 
yeah it was a it was a calling card it was an opportunity to immerse yourself within a culture and kind of feed off the wealth of knowledge that was naturally apparent in nashville with the release last week of your latest album getting comfortable with uncertainty which i think is a probably the best named album i've heard in a long long time and um, there's a song on it ireland which i've seen a lot this week a lot of people have picked it up it being uh, St. Patrick's week. You go through it and you spoke earlier about, you know, the lyrics and I actually printed it out in work and I read through it rather than listening to it. And if you read through it, it's kind of, um, it's like it reads as a, it's for a, love, a love letter. Would you describe it as a letter about your relationship with Ireland? How would you best describe it yourself? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, it's, it is a love letter to Ireland for me because at the time that I wrote that I was living away for about six years I'd been in Nashville for two and then London for five in the end and I wrote that when I was still in still living in London about a year before I moved home and like growing up in Ireland I grew up in a tiny town where everybody knows your business and half the people who live here are my cousins and I (laughs) you know I just I couldn't wait to see what else the world had to offer yeah. when I was young I wanted to get out I wanted to explore I thought Ireland was small I thought it was a bit small-minded in ways but that was my own being a teenager and thinking you know everything and thinking yeah. you know you can go you know what I mean yeah like, the grass is always greener on your side like, yeah and you're always like god I can't wait to get out of here and it was only after a few years abroad that I was like oh my god I miss I miss the smell of the Irish air. Yeah. I miss everybody knowing my name. I miss the the you know silly like I'm sorry. I mean everybody knowing my name as in like not because I'm a celebrity, but because everybody <laughs> in the town knows me. <laughs> um, like I miss the lingo. I miss chatting about ga and school and like how Irish people just get each other's humor. I miss the sarcasm. I miss my family. I miss. I definitely had so many moments I, I used to come home from london really regular sorry come home from to ireland from london fairly yeah. regularly every time i had to get back on the plane to london i would cry really yeah. and it wasn't because i didn't i loved london and i loved my life in london but my heart was always here yeah and i always knew i'd come back and so that song for me like i'll take your rain instead of sun the green of your hills in the yeah. summer that never lasts long you know the things that like I thought I wanted to get away from and then I was like I take all of that again and again to just yeah be back. No, there's a real sense of realization as you, as you read through the words of someone who had a maybe an interpretation of what they wanted to feel but when they went and explored the world that you know as small as the rock is back on the side of the Atlantic Ocean it is only home uh, and that really comes true in the lyrics it's a really powerful song thank you yeah that was that was the first song I ever wrote on guitar and it was probably the quickest song I've ever written as well. It was like just an outpouring of emotion in, you know, 15, 20 minutes and then it was done. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and sometimes it. songs just happen that way when you when you really feel them, you know. As we alluded to, living away from home seems very attractive and exciting at the start. And with social media, as powerful and as great as it is, it does play a large part of our lives. Um, the need to keep up appearances can be very hard and challenging. Um, did you find this was a reality or, or did you struggle with being away from home and trying to make sure that the mammy wasn't too worried about you? Oh God, my mom has five kids, so she only has a fifth of her to worry about me. But <laughs> she... <laughs> she um... 
Um, I don't know. I think I'm a very open, honest person. And I think I'm usually quite honest about what I feel, whether that's on social media or whether that's in real life. But I'm very aware of like the constant comparison we all do with other people because of social media. And I hate that. Yeah. And I think because of that, I try to be a more honest version of myself. And like, I have no problem telling people that when I moved to London, I cried almost every day for the first six months I lived there. I hated it. <laughs> and it was so lonely. It was so big. It was so scary. It was like, I felt like nobody. And um, coming from somewhere where you feel like you belong so much, going to a city the size of London is really hard. So I didn't really feel the need to to romanticise that. Yeah. But I suppose when you come back to Ireland, everybody romanticises it for you. Absolutely, yeah. They're like, oh, sure, isn't it great? Now you're off in London having a great time. And even if you're not having a great time, you have to be like, yep, yeah, I am living the dream. That's refreshing because, as I said, there's a lot of content online and on social media that, you know, um, everything is grand until such a time as, you know, you close the door and, and you're sitting in your apartment in London and, and you're crying for the first yeah. six months. Bit of a more technical question and moving towards the architecture of writing songs. Last week you released the album Getting Comfortable With Uncertainty and it has, I think, 13 songs. I wanted to understand more, and maybe the listeners would probably get a, a better sense of how you go about writing an album. Writing an album is a serious undertaking, Christ. Um, I think everybody does it differently. I would, I, I write very regularly. I would write two, three songs every week, sometimes more. And unless I'm taking a week off, I would never really write less than two songs a week. Wow. Songwriting is a muscle. Like the, just like if I sit down to play piano every day, I'm going to be better at it. And yeah. if I sit down to write a song every day, I'm going to be better at it. And naturally, you're going to have days where you're not as as creative. You're not flowing as much. The energy isn't there as much. But I am a big believer in consistency and I'm a big believer in in sitting down to exercise that muscle regularly. So like for getting comfortable with uncertainty, this album, I think I we originally started with 80 or 90 songs that had been written over, you know, a year period. And then I took those into studio and I narrowed them down, narrowed them down, narrowed them down until we got to about 20. And then with those 20 songs, I sat down with Joe and Dave Dunwell, who produced the album, and we picked our favorite, you know, 12 to work with. Um, and Time in a Bottle was added as a, as a bonus track later. Now, lots of people work differently in this process of recording. Yeah. I kind of work in the sense of like, I'll write loads, <laughs> loads and loads <laughs> and loads. And then the ones that stay on top are the yeah. ones that I know are going to go on the record. So like, I probably have about 500 songs that nobody will ever hear. And it's a crying shame. Maybe one day I'll put them out there. <laughs> but it must, it must be very difficult to kind of, and it must be a process of, being self-critiquing and trying to understand you know do these songs go together on one album first of all do, do they tell a story or is it a case of are we just picking the best songs that we think will do best commercially it must be kind of a process in terms of doing that yeah absolutely it really is and i think it's about how they all together as a story like an album is a is a piece of time it's like a i don't know it's like a book that yeah is going to be the story of this year or two year period. And so it's hard to, yeah, like I couldn't just stick another song on there that didn't fit with the overall concept. 
and I'm doing that again like I'm about to go into studio in the next few weeks to work on the next record Mm -hmm. and I'm actually having these conversations all over again which is um I'm ready to do that because this this last album was finished a good while ago and yeah it's it's not always about oh I really like this song and I really like this song and and so they're both going to go on it's about like yeah but how is this song going to gel with this song and how are they going to tell a story together if this is all going to be one body of work? As we alluded to at the start of the conversation, 2020 was supposed to be your year, international tours, UK, Ireland, across the globe, to Australia, New Zealand. Wouldn't we all love to be there now? But performing in front of a live audience, in-person um, audience, is something that's so attractive about your industry. You may be engaging every night. I know you might be playing the same playlist, but it's different crowds, different responses. It must be something that you miss really, really, really terribly at the moment. It's actually weird because we just announced a tour for a, a tour of the UK and Ireland for this winter, for October, November, and there's more dates that will soon be announced for Germany and for hopefully New Zealand and Australia, if that can happen in December. And a part of me is looking at those dates and being like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And another part of me is terrified because it's been so long. I really do miss it. I really miss, like as a musician, especially a touring musician, you have friends all over the world that you only see when you tour. So like I have friends all over the UK and in New Zealand and in America and in mainland Europe that I only ever see when I tour. And that I've gotten to know through that touring process, whether they're musicians or engineers or promoters or whatever. And I haven't seen any of them. So that I'm really excited about. And I am definitely drained of the live streams. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They are tough going. And I know that they're a great way to engage. And it's been amazing for me throughout the last year to do those live streams because it's allowed me this avenue to connect with my fans everywhere in the world. But you actually give twice as much in that live stream than you would in an actual live gig because you're getting nothing back. It's just all give. And so I really miss that about a room of people that you can actually sit there and and have banter and have a bit of crack and, and have all the energy be in that room. And, you know, everybody's, well, you hope everybody's having a good time. I'm really excited to get back to it. I'm nervous. It's been it's been a long time and the thoughts of playing to a venue with a band and, and all of the things that go with that as well, like all the tour planning, doing radio each morning, driving six hours between each show, having to plan every single minute of the six weeks that you're on tour. Like it's 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 grueling, it's exhausting and it's also really fun. So like I'm nervous about all the elements of being back on tour. I'm like, I hope I'm able for that. I hope well, I have the energy to do that again. <laughs> well, this is it, because you're coming from a place where you've, it's not a case you've had a year off or you've had time off. It's a case of you've, you've probably never been actually busier, you know, going into performing live gigs where, you, as you said, you've been promoting yourself, you've been releasing albums, you're writing now again. So it, it's a case of, will I be ready physically as much as mentally? Yeah, it really is. And I think I will have to be really careful with scheduling in a break before I go back out on tour because at the moment, like I'm, and I, it's a good, it's a good complaint to have that I'm, that I'm busy, but because I'm, you know, a self-releasing artist at the moment, I am the artist, I'm the songwriter, I'm the creative director, I'm the manager, I'm the label, I'm the publisher, I'm the sync agent, like I'm everything. Hey, George. And yeah, hey, George, absolutely. (laughs) 
and I it is social media everything and I think you know people underestimate I've had lots of people throughout my career think like Osher isn't it great you just get to rock up and play a show and I'm like if you knew the amount of work that goes into keeping this all going like it's it's very tiring because I've had a lot of successes come in over the last few months which I'm so grateful for and I'm so excited about things are coming in that are time sensitive that are you know sessions for writing for different artists writing for briefs and tv and they're all very time sensitive at the same time as writing for yourself and promoting yourself and releasing an album and like even simple things like postaging and packaging cds like that all takes a lot of time and at the moment i'm definitely you know pulling from my own reserves yeah Um, i'm at the bottom of my well so uh, it's it's i will have to be really conscious before i go back out on these tours to take a proper period of time yeah phone off, off email off yeah. no phone calls i'm really bad at doing that though no, my uh, god i'm terrible <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that one i wanted to ask you actually obviously as you said the last two months have been phenomenal in terms of you know exposing yourself your music and i was looking at you on the late late show and i was thinking it must be a dream to perform on the late late show but it must have been a really eerie experience to perform there but not to perform to anybody if you know what I mean even though it was two million people sitting at home yeah weird like the Late Late Show in Ireland is an institution like it's you know it's a big thing that a lot of artists are you know that's that's a huge career milestone and it was for me it had been something I'd wanted to do I'd been wanting to do for such a long time and getting to do that was was huge I loved every minute of it but yeah it was it was weird it was it was eerie you were performing to a room of people who were you know the engineers and the camera crew and everybody that was working at RTE and everybody in masks and everybody in you know behind shields and socially distanced and it was odd to not be able to have like oh my god we would have had some party if that was a regular night you know I, could only I would have been going to coppers in my dress that's, that's what would have happened <laughs> yeah and you know my family would have been up they would have been in the audience like it would have been amazing and it would have been it would have really marked the occasion whereas without the ability and everybody's finding that now in in every way without the ability to mark an occasion yeah it can be very anticlimactic like you're, you just come home yeah you're and getting, have a glass of wine you're getting, and you're like oh yeah you're getting okay you're getting stole, stolen of memories you, you'll never have, but you know what I mean? The memories that you thought you might create aren't being created. And uh, hopefully the next time you're on, I'm, and I'm sure the next time you're on, we'll be all up dancing and singing. And uh, um, Oh, we better. <laughs> absolutely. And I'll see you in coppers. <laughs> on the new album, there's a song that you obviously performed on the Late Late Show. It's a cover, and it's on, on the album as well, Time in a Bottle. To me, it has notes of a Dick Van Dyke push by mountain in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But my question to you is, what brought you to see a cover a song such as this that goes back to 1973, I think? Yeah, so um, Time in a Bottle is, you know, to me, one of the most gorgeous songs ever written. Yeah. And my, it was actually one of my mother's favourite songs when I was growing up. She had a Jim Crochet vinyl, like, a long, long time ago. Um... I think she still has it somewhere in the house, actually. And um, basically, the reason I decided to cover it was that I was approached by the creators of this show, Firefly Lane, that was going to be on Netflix. Approached by some of the people that were working on the show. They wanted a female version of Time in a Bottle, and they couldn't find any that they liked. 
So usually what happens in these scenarios is they contact a few people and they say, hey, can you try, Can you do a version? Send it to us. And it could be you and 500 other people they ask to do yeah. it. Or it could be you and three other people. You don't know. But you throw your hat in the ring and, and for these briefs, we would call them. Yeah. And with this one, yeah, like I got the brief through and I was like, right, I'm going to try and... I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this one. I love this song. Like, I think I could do a really good job of it. So I rang up my friend Mark Kaplis, who produced the track and features on the track with me. And I was like, Mark, got this um, brief through female version of Time in a Bottle. Like, I would really like to do it with you. So I went up to his studio and we, we talked about it. We threw around a lot of ideas. And my big thing with this cover was... And I don't do very many covers. Like the whole rest of the album is all original songs. Yeah. And I, I would very rarely release, I think I've released three covers maybe or four in my whole career. And I, my big thing with this one was it's a very precious song to a lot of people. And a lot of people would be like, oh no, that's untouchable. Like yeah. don't cover that song. Like Fairy Tale in New York, which I also did. <laughs> and, uh, Someone should have told Ronald Keane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, so my big thing was it needs to be different enough from the original and unique enough yeah. that it's not upsetting people that are so close to the original. So we threw around a lot of ideas and then we turned off all the lights in the studio, lit some candles and went for a take. And it was so much more important for us to capture the emotion than it was to like get everything perfect. So like what you hear is that one full take. And there is, we didn't even do it to a metronome. It's not even in time. Like it's all, you know, but it's emotional and it's, it's, it's otherworldly. And that's what we wanted. Um, and then it got picked for the Netflix show. So absolutely delighted. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's funny you say like it's, it, it was just the one take, like, and it was driven by emotion. It's, um, it's definitely a song and that, just fills the room with emotion you can't not but stop and listen to it and it's and I also I, I haven't watched the series but by all interpretations it's going well someone I, I read somewhere has 1.2 billion minute views on Netflix I know I saw that and I was like I can't even comprehend that number like how many people have actually heard me saying is scary <laughs> no I'm sure the, the, the life is much better for it when you look towards, I know, I know we've touched on a, a little bit in, in the last hour, the future for Megan O'Neill, what does it look like? What's on the agenda? Obviously, you have released the album, which, where can they get the album? And they can get it on my website, which is megan-oneill.com, and I think it's forward slash store, and they can also get it on Bandcamp, um, and when I get back out on tour, they can get physical copies of it as well. Brilliant. And you did, did say that you hope to be touring later this year? Yeah, we've announced dates for October and November across Ireland and the UK, and then there's more to be announced soon. Brilliant. And so they're all, all those tickets are on sale already. So you can get and check them out for the dates that uh, are online. In terms of yourself, what's the hope for the next, maybe, what's the plan? I don't know if we can plan. Maybe it's a hope. Hope for the next year, 18 months for yourself. I am so fortunate to be able to say that I absolutely love what I'm doing. I am so happy with the songs I'm writing the people I get to collaborate with with you know the people that are on my team I'm thrilled with what this past year has been career-wise and um, probably not personal-wise but career-wise <laughs> there's a lot of things that I just want to keep growing 
from where I currently am. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the studio, working on the next record, which is happening in April. And the first thing will be released from that probably in September time. Um, I'm really looking forward to playing gigs again. And I'm just, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I just want to make this more sustainable. Um, ideally, if I could, you know, clone myself <laughs> and have two of myself and one of me could manage the other one of me, that would be really ideal because uh, it's it's fairly exhausting trying to do it all yourself. But I, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, keep growing and keep, you know, I'd love to be working more with, like we did for Time in a Bottle, songs for TV and movie, which I'm moving into, have moved into quite a bit in the last few months. Brilliant. And songwriting for other artists as well, which is always such an interesting thing to like work with another artist and bring their story to life in a beautiful way. So just to keep keep going the way I'm going, really. <laughs> keep, keep, keep trucking, I think is what they say. I think, Megan, yeah. it's been great to talk to you. I think everything that you do, you do with a, a, a huge degree of passion and positivity. It definitely comes across from talking to you. It definitely comes across in terms of watching what you do on social media and the music that you do put out and the songs that you are writing. It, it's really a breath of fresh air. And in a time where we could all do with that, I would implore people to check out Megan on on Instagram. Go and get her music in your ears, as they say. And you will definitely be better for it, Megan. It's great to have you on the Big Nose Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.